Good morning. I noticed, Bobby, that you're wearing a Raider hat, but not a Dodger hat. After, after what happened last night, you should not wear a Dodger hat. <laughs> uh, I wanted to add to what he just talked about with the children's ministry because we, we really need help, particularly at 9 a.m. Also, if you're, if you're here, obviously, but we need to balance it out a little bit, but we certainly need help. And particularly if you have children back there, whether it's once a month or whatever, I want to exhort you, actually, to help and get involved with that. It's, uh, it's needed, and it's also... Uh, Good to do it, okay? So I want to shout that out, our children's ministry, but then also uh, I want to ask you to continue praying for our nation uh, because we're in a, a real, we've been in a very difficult time, uh, and it seems like no other to me ever uh, as far as just our nation, our world, but our nation. So First Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians 7.14 is a key verse. We've heard it many times, but I want to continue just to remind us. If my people, who, and this is God speaking to his people, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. And we are praying, would you amen me on that? We're praying that God will heal our land. And so uh, I, I, read, I just read a book this week from Cal Thomas. It's called America's Expiration Date, subtitle, The Fall of Empires and Superpowers and the Future of the United States. So he goes through the sort of the eight, eight different empires and what happened and how it happened. It's an excellent read, but he concludes that book with this quote, what appears that we like to do least, pray, is what is most effective in achieving the ends we seek. It is really up to us, but mostly up to God, who just might respond again with a revival if our intention is to honor him rather than seek pleasure, wealth, and comfort for ourselves. It all begins with a concert of prayer. I love that. And that's how he was closing the whole thing out. And we know that. I know that you know that. I know that. But sometimes it seems like it's just not enough. And brothers and sisters, there are other things, but we can do nothing until we pray. And that everything we're doing is through prayer. And so we are doing that. So he talked about this concert of prayer. I want to tell you the little concerts we have going on for us. Uh, we have now 127 of our family here that's praying uh, morning, noon, and evening every day for 40 days. This is day 32. You can still, if you want to, go on our website, connect in with us. You've got eight more days. And we're hoping it goes beyond that. I will tell you it already has for me personally. Because the whole idea of the book that we gave out is 40 days of prayer, yes, but we, it should revolutionize our understanding and our commitment to praying. And it's definitely done that for me. So I, if you want to join us on that every morning, noon, and evening, I'll send out just a simple reminder. That's my commitment to you. I've been doing that. You get that on your, and I don't care if it's a minute or an hour, and God doesn't care either, but we just sort of stop everything for a moment, think about our nation, and pray for us. Now, that's one, one of the concerts. Franklin Graham, he's called for God's people to set aside today for prayer and fasting in seeking God's direction for our country. He said this, I hope you're making plans to join me tomorrow. This is yesterday for a day of fasting and prayer for America. There's so much at stake for our nation in the upcoming election, and there's so little time left. Let's call out to God together for his intervention and mercy. He is our nation's only hope. So he said, don't lose heart and don't give up. And I would say amen to that. Now, also, the concerts, this Thursday at 7.14 p.m. Greg loves this stuff. Uh, 2 Chronicles 7.14. At 7.14, exactly, in our fellowship hall, 
Char and I are going to be there. If you want to come, we're going to pray from 7.14 to 8 o'clock on thir Thursday night and then Monday, the eve of the election. We're just going to ask God. We're going to stay on our knees before God, asking God to be merciful. And I'm pray I love our country. I'm praying there will be a landslide of righteousness that will flood our, our, our nation and that God can do what he wants to do. Amen. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is reproached to any people. So we need righteousness restored in so many areas. And unless God's, God is going to grant us repentance and God is going to do the things that he said he would do in, through our repentance, my people will turn from their wicked ways. When we repent, God will respond to those things. But if there's not that, in fact, uh, Charlotte, yesterday in our prayer meeting, read something from the Calvary Road. I'm going to talk more about this book next week. The Calvary Road was written in 1950. It's a classic. It's by a guy named Roy Hessian. And he's talking all about the cross. And as Charlotte read that, I was moved by it to realize that there's sin all over the place in my own life. As far as how do I see sin and what does that mean? And really individually is the answer that we understand our need to come to Christ and come to the cross and receive forgiveness and not try and call sin something else. And I don't think we do that necessarily intentionally, but a lot of times to look at what's going on in our hearts and minds and realize that's not pleasing to the Lord. Let me tell you something. I got a lot of bad attitudes. <laughs> How about you? You just hear things. It can be so, and we're experiencing these battles that are going on all the time. And I'm, when she read that yesterday, Charlotte did, it was, it was like, so I got the book from her, and I read the whole thing yesterday. It's fantastic, and it's all about the cross. And so, uh, in fact, uh, it was Billy Graham that at one point in his ministry realized if he's preaching the gospel and he's there and he doesn't mention the cross, there's something that's going <laughs> to, we need the cross. Can you say amen? Today we're going to do communion. Again, reminding ourselves again of what Jesus did for us on the cross so he can heal our lives, and then he can heal our marriages and our families and our nation. I'm preaching, and if I don't, I'm going to use my time up here. Okay, so uh, would you stand as we read the word? We, we want to be continuously honoring God's word, not just by standing, that's, but in our hearts and minds. We've been given a treasure. It's more to be desired than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. So Genesis 39, I'm going to read verses 1 through 6, and then 21 through 23. I'll pray, and we'll get into the word this morning. Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. And Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, an Egyptian, brought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there, bought him. The, now, here's the key in this, these two chapters. The Lord was with him. The Lord was with Joseph, and he was a successful man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian, and his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord made all he did to prosper in his hand. So, jo so Joseph found favor in his sight and served him. Then he made him overseer of his house, and all that he had he put under his authority. That's Joseph. And so it was from the time that he had made him overseer of his house and all that he had, notice, that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. And, blessing, and the blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in the house and in the field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's hand, and he did not know what he had except for the bread which he ate. So when he had a meal. And Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Verse 21. But the Lord was with Joseph. He's thrown in prison now. And, showered and showed him mercy. And he gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison committed to Joseph. Same thing. 
Joseph sent all the prisoners who were in the prison, whatever they did there, it was his doing. The keeper of the prison did not look into anything that was under Joseph's authority, completely trusted him because the Lord was with him, and whatever he did, the Lord made it prosper. Lord, we thank you again for your word. Lord, I prepared some things, but I pray by your Holy Spirit you break them fresh, feed us, we're hungry. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. And Lord, we also know that the beginning of our faith is through salvation by believing in you. And so, Lord, whoever's watching, whoever might be here that doesn't know you, has not come, into, come to that place of repentance and turning to you for forgiveness and cleansing and new life, we pray, Lord, that your word would go forth into their hearts and begin to draw them to yourself, even to the point of receiving you today. Behold, today is a day of salvation, receiving you today as the only one who can save their soul. And we're thankful for that. I pray, Lord, as we go through the word, and then we're going to take communion. You give us ears to hear, and our hearts are, Lord, softened to your word. We're hearing what you're saying. And, Lord, if there's any need, like, like David said, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties, and see if there's any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way of everlasting. So I pray you grant us repentance as needed. I pray you give us, Lord, just a, a sense of your presence this morning as we get in the word, a, a sense that you, of your love for us and your, that you're with us, Lord. You're, you've never left us or forsaken us. Lord, so anyway, I, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So Joseph had lots of reasons to question God with him, and I'm sure that we can all have our own list. <laughs> but Joseph stands alongside Job as a man who trusted God in the midst of awful and adverse uh, situations. It was awful. After all that Joseph went through, he come back to this legendary epitaph, but as for you, to his brothers who sold him into slavery, we're going to kill him. But as for you, meant it for evil against me. But God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. What a fantastic uh, depth that he had with the Lord. So there are many other examples in the Bible of people who lived far above adversity in their lives. They walked with God. They had eternal perspective. They anchored their faith in the eternal God who is our refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. So we can't go, any, however deep we may go, however far we may fall, God is always underneath us to hold us and keep us. That's our God. That's who he is by nature. And through all of his adversity, God was with Joseph. So this vivid narrative hardly needs commentary as we read Joseph's life. So I have three thoughts I'm going to give you. We did one, part one last week. We're going to take part two this week. And next week we're going to part three because there's so much here that I believe the Lord has on his heart for us to hear. So the first one is a, God was with him. He was a servant and a steward to be a blessing. And that's what God's called us to. He is with us not for our selfishness. He's with us for our servant serving others, and being a blessing in other people's lives. started with Abraham when he said, you're going to be a blessing to the nations. Secondly, he's with us in times of temptation to overcome sin. Now, we're going to look at that this morning. I'm sure that a lot of what I will be saying this morning, a lot of scriptures, if you walk with the Lord for any time at all, you've heard them before. But how we need to understand that we will be tempted, we're going to be facing temptation, some powerful stuff, but God is with us to overcome those things. Greater is he who is in us than he that is in the world. 
He wants to conquer sin in our lives. He wants to give us an understanding of the power of the Holy Spirit to overcome sin. And he's provided all these things for us. Now, next week, when falsely accused, (laughs) this is a tough one. When falsely accused to show mercy. Is that the natural inclination? Absolutely not. But yet we look at Joseph's life. He's thrown in prison. And we see there, God showed him mercy, and Joseph lived showing the same mercy. So this morning, first of all, just to recap, a servant and a steward to be a blessing. God sent him down there and put him right there. So Joseph said to his brothers, you sold me, God sent me. And he had that perspective. God sent them there to be successful. He sent them there to be seen. He sent them there to serve and to steward that which was not his own. So look at verse 5. So it was from the time that he had made him overseer of his house and all that he had that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house. And the blessing of the Lord was on all that he had. He was there by God's own decree, if you will, to bless, to be a blessing. And that's why wherever we are, it's to serve and steward, not which is, are the things of God, that we might be a blessing in other people's lives. This held true throughout Joseph's life, throughout his whole life. He served as a steward to be a blessing. That, that should be a prayer in our hearts. This is how Joseph was seen and why he was successful. God blessed him because he was there as God's, God put him there. So look at verse 6 at the end. It says, And Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Now, this is probably why, most likely, was the first reason he was even put in Potiphar's house, how he looked outwardly. But it is also a big reason for some formidable temptation, which is what we want to look at this morning. So it came to pass, verse 7, after these things, that his master's wife cast longing eyes on Joseph, and she said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, look, My master does not know what is with me in the house, and he has committed all that he has to my hand. There is no one greater in this house than I, nor has he kept back anything from me but you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? So it was, as she spoke to Joseph day by day, every day he's facing this temptation, He's facing this woman. He was successful. He was seen. He was a steward with great authority. These are the kinds of things that can easily go to a person's head and ruin his heart for God. It can do that very easily. If you don't, if you want to know a little bit more about that, ask Solomon. The wisest man ever on the earth until Jesus came along. Let's read what it says about Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 11. But King Solomon loved many foreign women, as well as the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabite, Ammonite, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites, from the nations of whom God, the Lord had said to the children of Israel, you shall not intermarry with them. Now, can I remind you, God knows what he's talking about. And so he says, you shall not do that, nor nor they with you. Surely they will turn away your hearts after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. 
And he had 700 wives, princes, and 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his heart. Now notice this, verse 4. For, for, for it was so when Solomon was old. You know that many of the characters in the Bible fell in their latter years. That his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not loyal to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father David. Now remember, David had his own temptation that he lost the battle. But he repented. So key, he repented. Joseph had, a position, had position and power, but was coupled with very powerful, youthful passions. Joseph is at his prime, probably about 20 years old at this point. His sexual drive is peaking. He is far away from home and family. He is being relentlessly pursued by his master's wife, probably a very beautiful woman physically, dressed to attract and arouse Joseph. Relentless and shameless in his pursuit of him, Noah up three times, lie with me, lie with me, lie with me, day by day by day by day. And I would say in our culture, that same temptation is there daily, daily, towards sexual immorality. So she casts longing eyes on him. She casts the bait. And to see her so she can seduce him. She said, lie with me. So she's communicating the invitation. You can have me. I'll be yours. She spoke day by day the continual propositioning to erode his resolve to resist. In Judges 16, 16, it came to pass when she, that's Delilah, pestered Samson daily with her words and pressed him so that his soul was vexed to death that he told her what? All his heart. His heart. What did he do? He betrayed the secret of his strength. You know what the secret of his strength was? It was not his long hair. It was his consecration to God. His greatest enemy was not Delilah. His greatest enemy is what he allowed in his heart, in his heart. And so it was. She spoke to him day by day, lie with me, lie with me. Now notice this in verse 10. He did not heed her to lie with her or be with her. In other words, Joseph took extreme measures, knowing the temptations that he was facing. Or even to be with her. Now, it's my personal conviction that I am never alone with another woman in any private setting. And when in public, best case with my wife, Charlotte, minimally some other person. Some would say this is extreme. I say this is wise. When I read the passage like Proverbs, which I'm going to go a little bit, Proverbs 5, Proverbs 6, Proverbs 7, I say is extremely wise. Therefore, hear me now, my children, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Remove your way far from her, and not to, do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others, your years to the cruel, unless aliens be filled with your wealth. And, you, and, and you're, you're, everything's robbed. You lose everything. 
And you mourn at last when your flesh and your body are consumed and say, how I have hated instruction. My heart, despi- my heart despised reproof. I have not obeyed the voice of my teachers, nor, nor inclined my ear to those who instructed me. I was on the verge of total ruin in the midst of the congregation and assembly. Proverbs 5, Proverbs 6. For the commandment is a lamp and the law a light. Reproofs of instruction are the way of life. Are we, are our ears open to reproof? Hold on a second, brother. Hold on a second, sister. To keep you from the evil woman, from the flattering tongue of a seductress. Do not lust after her beauty, where? In your heart. Nor let her allure you with her eyelids. For by means of a hearted, a man is reduced to a crust of bread. And an adulteress will prey upon his precious life. Can a man take fire to his bosom and his clothes not be burned? The answer is no, he can't. Proverbs 7. With her enticing speech, she caused him to yield. With her flattering lips, she seduced she seduced him. Immediately he went after her. Watch out for impulse. Immediately he went after her. As an ox goes to the slaughter, it's like the dumbest thing you could do. But you have no awareness you're doing it. Now, therefore, listen to me, my children. You know, I want to be, I, I be, honestly, this is such a huge problem. And it comes off often in Scripture because God knows this is powerful. I want to talk a little about this in more and more. But I want you to know, brothers and sisters, this is a problem not just for men. It's a problem for both sexes in our culture today. And I think God wants to say it again. Because I was, as I'm looking, I said, okay, do I talk about that again? God has confirmed it to me through a, a conversation that I had. I said, okay, yes, I'm going to do this this morning. That's why it's part two of three. It's serious, my brothers and sisters. It's a serious problem, and it is destroying, if not already destroyed, everything that matters to God. I'll talk about that in a moment. So, pay attention to the words of my mouth. Do not let your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her path. Don't stray there. Don't even go there. For she has cast down many wounded, and notice this, and all who were slain by her were strong men. I'm preaching to myself as much as any of you. Samson was a strong man. Solomon was a very strong man. And a long, sad list of once very influential leaders of God's people and I know some of them personally. In the Calvary Chapel movement, we're not, we're not sheltered from the, there's Calvary Chapel paths that I've known, mighty men used by God who were secretly carrying on affairs and these kinds of things. And know this, your sin will find you out and you lose everything. Is it worth it? I don't think so. No, I know it's not worth it. I think the Lord was saying to us, take heed, listen. Don't stray there. Don't go there. Don't let your heart begin the process. We must not be ignorant of the schemes of the devil. 
and the power of the worldly temptations to our sinful, fleshly heart. They're powerful. We all know that sexual morality is a huge problem among God's people. Our hour of prayer two weeks ago, someone was praying. Having heard that 75% of professing Christian men are engaged in some level of pornography. And it's not just men. I don't know percentage-wise, but I know there's a huge problem among women. Jesus said, watch and pray lest you enter temptation. Notice, the spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. The heart is deceitful of all things, desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the hearts. We've got to let the Spirit of God search our hearts and look in this area of temptation and what is it that's going. And again, I, I believe that the, well, let me, let me go on here. I'm getting ahead of myself. We can never be too cautious when it comes to the lusts in our hearts. We must be ridiculously radical in these matters of the heart. Look what Jesus said. We've got to listen to Jesus very carefully. You have heard that it was said to, the thro- to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery. Where? In his heart. So radical. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. It's serious stuff. And I want to talk a little bit, because this is a revelation to me just as we're going through 1 Corinthians on Wednesday night in our Facebook Live. How do we look at sexual morality? Are we understanding why it is mentioned so often in the Bible and why the devil will use that to destroy us? We must be, well, let's go to James. Blesses the man who endures temptation. For when he has been proved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But anyone, each man is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires. Watch out for the desires. Bring them under the submission to the Holy Spirit, his own desires, and enticed. Then when desire is conceived, it brings forth, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. There is always, at any moment, a time to repent. A time to repent. Maybe it's conceived. Maybe it's given birth to repent. Stop. Think about it. We must be filled with the Spirit. We must be walking in the Spirit. We must be led by the Spirit. We must yield our members as instruments of righteousness to the Holy Spirit, to God. Because in our flesh, we are always weak and we're no match for the devil's tactics and the power of the flesh and the world that he uses to tempt us away from our consecration to God. We must become skilled, listen, skilled with the word of God because the word of God is the sword of the spirit. Jesus, when he was tempted, he answered, it is written. He said again to the devil, it is written. Now, I don't know that I've ever faced the devil personally, but Jesus did, and you better know he did. It wasn't just something to sort of write a story about. He faced, he was 40 days fasting. That's when the devil comes, when we're the weakest. He begins to tempt Jesus with powerful temptations. Know the powerful temptations. How did Jesus deal with that? It is written. It is written. 
It is written, and then it says, the devil fled. Away with you, and he left. Are you skilled? Are you exercising yourself to understand the word of God, to know the word of God, to hide the word of God in your heart, knowing that that is God's weapon, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Satan will never stop lying to you. Never. He is the father of lies. There is no truth in him. But the, and the Bible tells the entirety of God's word is truth. Now, Satan will never stop lying to you, but listen, Jesus will never stop praying for you. He prayed for Simon. The devil wants to sift you as wheat, but I prayed for you. He prayed for his disciples in John 17. He said, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. He pr- he's our great intercessor. He's praying for us. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, the weapons of our warfare are not are not carnal of the flesh, but mighty in God to the pulling down of strongholds. It's a thing of the mind. I've shared this before. I I say it again. It's a key passage. Where does the battle take place? It's in our minds and for our hearts. It's in our minds for our hearts. So how you think and what you're thinking about and how you understand these things are critical to the battle that you're facing as a believer. In the Lord Jesus Christ. Casting down what? Arguments. It's the mind. And every high thing exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Now, I think my problem sometimes, I'm I'm just carrying on this conversation that should be ended immediately. Uh, No, that's not true. That's not right. I get it. I see it. The word is a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. The the word of God shows me where I am and where I'm heading. And oftentimes I don't take heed to where I am. As the light is shined, I want to turn the light off. I want to allow that thought to go further. Casting out arguments that every high thing exalts itself against what? The knowledge of God. So what I believe about God, what I know about God. And again, I'm... I want to get to 1 Corinthians 6 here in a moment because I feel like the Lord just showed me something us as we're teaching that. But he says, and bringing everywhere thought captive to what? The obedience of Christ. Now, everyone who is a believer in this room, those who are watching, all of us understand this battle. It's not foreign to us. We know it. And the mind begins to argue. The mind begins to deliberate. The mind begins, well, maybe. And pretty soon, that that temptation is a conception of something that I go and do. But let me remind you again. I'll talk about this again. There's There's never a moment where you can't stop and repent and turn from your wicked way and find there God leading you in paths of righteousness now for his name's sake. That godly sorrow that produces repentance not to be regretted that Paul also talks about. It changes everything. Repentance. And the only way that's going to happen is at the cross. We realize Jesus died for these things for a reason. Because we couldn't. We would die in these things. Jesus died for us on the cross to have a place we can come to him at any time, at any moment in our lives and say, Lord, I repent. I'm on my knees again before you for that thought or what I'm doing. We must pray and we must stay in fellowship with believers. Critical. 
side by side, shields up, sword out. I am certain that the increase in temptation for believers is exponential because of what's happened to our nation, what's happening with COVID. And this, the facts are out there clear. Anxiety, depression, substance abuse, suicide. And no question in my mind, sexual immorality has heightened exponentially. So she caught him by his garment to force her lustful passions on him. Her lustful intentions on him. She finds her opportunity and seizes it. I would suggest that she, knowing Joseph's schedule, she arranged for the empty house. Look at verse 11. It happened at this time when Joseph went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was inside, verse 12, that she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. The devil is exceedingly cunning. He knows how to get you alone. He knows how to tempt you in your aloneness, in your loneliness, in the things that are going on. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and ran outside. Listen, Joseph was out of there in a serious hurry. I'm, go- I'm out of here. I'm out of here. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Flee, verse 18, flee sexual immorality. Now, this is a verse we were talking about. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. And on Wednesday night, we were saying, okay, what does that mean? How do we apply that? How do we understand that? Sexual morality is something that for some reason is a sin of greater consequence. Why is that? I think that's a great, important question. It's a good question, an ongoing question. But if I might share with you some of the things that came to mind as we were talking these things through Wednesday night on our, on our Facebook Live. Sexual immorality is something that is of greater consequence. What I believe is at least some of the answer, if not central to the answer, is this. Sinning, this sinning, sexual morality, these sins destroy everything at the root of what is sacred to God. If I would outline 1 Corinthians 6 now, Verses 1 through 11, a sacred assembly. And Paul's talking about you're taking each other to court and doing this before unbelievers. Can't you figure these things out in the church? How are you going to do it? It's through humility and brokenness and being willing to be wronged and being willing to forgive. So Paul talks about it in verses 1 through 11. There's a sacred assembly. It's called the church. But you get to verse 12 and you have a sacred union. A sacred union. Look at verse 13. Now the body is not for sexual morality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Verse 15. 
Do you not know? And he says this six times in this chapter. Do you not know? Do you not know? Do you not know? That your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual morality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are the gods. And I believe that looks back, that, that outlines the chapter. In your spirit, your attitude. Glorify God in your attitude. How are you treating each other? How are you working through relational issues? How are you going to reconcile? What's the attitude? Well, we're going to, I'm going to do what the world does. You, you owe me. Um, no. He says, no, 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 no. It's a sacred assembly where we understand what Jesus did for us. And therefore, we treat each other with the same forgiveness and compassion and mercy and grace. But then he says, glorify God in your body. Do you not know that your relationship with God is sacred? God will have no rivals. Do you not know that the marriage relationship is sacred? We're called the bride of Christ. I'm talking earthly. God created the the man and the woman for this sacred relationship in which there can be no rivals. Listen again, no rivals. No rivals, number one, of any other person. And no rivals of any other perspective. How God defines it is what it is, and you cannot mess with that. It's sacred. Marriage is a one biological man and one biological female who covenant together to stay faithful and true to each other until death do them part. That's marriage. Your perspective doesn't matter. God's already made it clear. All sexual relationship outside the marriage covenant and all sexual activity outside the marriage bed is sexual immorality, period. Period. The marriage bed is undefiled, Hebrews tells us. The marriage relationship is sacred to God. It is out of the sacred marriage, Genesis, right in the beginning, there's Adam naming all the animals. No one was found. So God brought it, created Eve from his rib, Eve, and they became husband and wife. Right from the beginning, everything that's sacred to God flows out of the marriage relationship. Everything. They call it holy matrimony for a reason. Everything else that is sacred to God flows out of us, and his blessings abound toward us when we understand, number one, our relationship with God is sacred, and number two, the marriage relationship is sacred. I believe it's foundational. Everything that God wants to do in blessing a person, a family, a nation. The family unit is sacred to God. Children are sacred to God. 
As goes relationship with God, so goes marriage. As goes marriage, so goes the family. As goes the family, so goes the community. As goes the community, so goes the state. As goes the state, so goes the nation. Is it any wonder that America may indeed be facing its expiration date? I am not hopeless because there's a cross. I'm not hopeless because I serve a God who is merciful and gracious. And as one quote said, kind beyond all measure. I'm not hopeless. If there's no cross, I'm a guilty sinner left alone to be sentenced and punished to death. At the cross, I'm still a guilty sinner. But Jesus was sentenced and punished for me. He pardoned and sanctified me. At the cross, there's forgiveness, mercy, healing, and hope. I don't, it doesn't matter what degree it might be or where you might be in your life, where I'm in my life, there's always the cross that we come back to. We're going to do communion today because of the cross. Chris Tomlin has a song, At the Cross. There's a place where mercy reigns and never dies. There's a place where streams of grace flow deep and wide. Where all the love I've ever found comes like a flood, comes flowing down. I remember the first time I heard this, I wept when I first sang this song. At the cross, at the cross, I surrender my life. I'm in awe of you. I'm in awe of you. At the cross, at the cross, where your love ran red and my sin washed white, I owe all to you. I owe all to you. God sees my relationship with him and your relationship as something sacred. He's the one who initiated it. He's the one who made a way for it. And he's the one who desires to have that sacred relationship with him that then is manifested out into our lives in the sacredness of marriage and family and children. Shout out, Lindsay, and the others in our children's ministry. So 2 Timothy 2.22, flee youthful lust and pursue righteousness. 1 Peter 2.11, abstain from lust and lust, which war against what? Your soul. So to my family in Christ, some of you, even as I speak, are in the planning stages of sexual immorality. Some of you are in the developing stage of sexual immorality. You're entertaining these things in your mind. Others of you are actively involved in trying to manage your secrets. You have this idea deceptively that you can get away with it. It'll be okay. You will not. Your sin will find you out. My sin has found me out many times. We are being set up to sin when we allow ourselves to think loosely about sin. 
we are being set up to sin, when we play around with temptations in our minds. It's a setup. Samson played around with his consecration to God, and it cost him. He laid his head in the lap of temptation one too many times, and it cost him everything. He was blinded, bound, and grinding, and died under the rubble of a world that he came to make a difference in. We are being set up for disaster when we begin to hide sin in our hearts and from others. Listen. Joseph was not running from a secret life. He was running because he had a sacred life. Joseph was not fleeing lest he be found out. He was fleeing lest he lose everything. Joseph had no secrets. He lived known and to be known. He wasn't perfect. He had his thing. But he didn't live secretly. His life was an open book before God. He walked in the light, as 1 John tells us. Walking in the light doesn't mean I'm walking perfect. It means I'm walking willing to see what's really going on in my heart. From the very beginning, like Daniel, Joseph was committed to consecration to God. Listen, there is much at stake. There was much at stake for Joseph. Everything Joseph had up to this point was on the line. All the trust, all the integrity, all the blessings, everything was on the line. Joseph was out there in a seri- was out of there in a serious hurry because he did not become a crust of bread. He didn't want to do that. How many lives, relationships, marriages, and families have, been, have, have to be devastated, even destroyed, because of some secret life that's now found out? Now, whether you're entertaining these things or actively involved, the question is, is it worth it? I know of no believer who says, yes, it was all worth it. Rather, the testimonies are bondage and hopelessness, loneliness and emptiness, soaring losses and searing pain, regret and remorse. But let me say this, those are the very things that should lead us to repentance, where God can sever it and begin a whole new work. You ask him, he'll tell you. You ask her, she'll tell you. Not worth it. It's not worth it. Some of you in this room have been close, and somehow, some way, your attention came, your mind got right, and you, you, you got out of there, and you, you know well. Thank God. The only thing that we experience is when we turn to Jesus, we find in him the way, the truth, and the life. And he sets us free. That's not, that does not mean it's without consequence. does not mean there may be years of seeking to find wholeness and healing from the things that we did. But there's hope. 
So 1 Corinthians chapter 6, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, that's just not sexual morality. There's other things there. But here it is. And such were some of you. See, praise the Lord. Such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Can we say amen? We were, we're no longer. But we were now, past tense, sanctified. We were justified. We were washed by the blood of the Lamb. Ephesians, and you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. And once you once walked, you once walked according to, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit now works in the sons of what? Disobedience. Among whom, also, whom we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we we're dead in trespass, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. You have been saved. Wow. By grace. This is what you were. This is what you are. Now notice what he says. And raised up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ, that in the ages of I show the exceeding riches of his grace toward us in Christ. He's talking about us, God's family. We look around the room, we're all, we're once that, but now us, 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 us. For by grace you have been saved through faith. I believe it needs to be personal in the midst of the us. You have been saved. Through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works as anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good work, which God prepared before and then we should walk in it. What a turnaround. Would you say amen? What a turnaround. So I want to close with some verses here in preparing our hearts this morning for communion. What the gospel declared to us from the beginning is still the same this morning. There's a place of mercy. There's a place of forgiveness. There's a place of cleansing. There's a place where we can find through the cross in Christ what he did for us to have our sins forgiven and our lives washed and healed. I don't know what you're dealing with, the temptations you're facing, maybe some of those planning stages, developing stages, maybe an actively involved, but listen, None of us comes on higher ground. <laughs> we come on the same level ground at the cross. And there we kneel before God and say, Lord, forgive me. How can a young man cleanse his way by taking heed according to your word? He who covers his sin will not prosper, but whoever confesses him or says him will have mercy. Psalm 51, David when he sinned against, have mercy on me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. David's not saying, well, you know, I got the. No, he said, according to yours, according to you. 
Hebrews, seeing that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness. Weakness is what was in all points tempted, yet without sin. Therefore, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What do you need help with this morning? What do you need mercy for? What do you need grace for? What do I need? A lot. A lot. And we have a high priest who went through all of it. Jesus, without sin, went to a cross to pay the price for our sin, died, was buried three days, rose again the third day, is risen into heaven to see at the right hand making intercession for us. We have this great high priest, and he understands our weakness. He knows all of them. We need to bring them to him who is the only one who can set us free. I want to exhort you, brother, encourage you, plead with you, repent. Just as I need to repent from attitudes and actions that God calls sin. The temptations that I'm facing that God wants to arm me with so that I can fight it off and not be found sinning. So 1 John, my little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, so he's not saying but if anyone sins. No, he's saying and, <laughs> and, because we all sin. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, writes, and he himself is the propitiation, the mercy seat for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. There's no other place to find forgiveness. There's no other mercy seat for the whole world than Christ. And finally, in Luke 18, the tax collector. Remember that story? Standing afar off would not even as much raise his eyes to him, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the same word, be propitiatory toward me, a sinner. So if, if as the worship team comes out, we're going to do uh, communion. I want to put this verse up there for us to just think about what's going on and then bring our hearts to God in, in communion. Paul wrote to the Corinthians in chapter 11 and said, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and, and said, Take ye, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it again in remembrance of me. And Paul writes, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. So as we take communion, we're looking back to the cross in repentance, examining ourselves. We're looking forward to Jesus' kingdom, and we do that rejoicing. We do it rejoicing. It's in remembrance of me. I look up to Jesus. We look up to Jesus in communion, remembering that he is the one and only Savior, crucified on a cross for our sin, and that he is also our risen and coming King. So we're here waiting. Are you waiting? We can look back and find there at the cross where I bring repentance and forgiveness. We can find on the cross the hope for our sin. But then we're looking forward 
to Jesus coming again. And right now we're here saying, Lord, would you please wash me, cleanse me from all my sin, from all of my iniquities. That's our prayer, Lord. So as, this, as the emblems are being passed out, would you just take those, hold those in prayerful presence of the Lord and we'll take them together.